Hello and welcome to episode one of the Reset and Release podcast. I'm Connor. And I'm Josh. This is a podcast all about sex, safety and satisfaction. And it looks to illustrate how sex intersects with all aspects of our daily world. Today's episode revolves around our mental health in the context of sexual experiences. And we are delighted to be joined by Rachel Cook experienced psychotherapist and the resident sex expert on Ireland's favorite radio station. So Rachel, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, We have lots and lots to ask you, but before we start, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Oh, I will. Thanks for having me, Connor and Josh. Yeah, so basically I've been a psychotherapist for 10 years now, and I have I suppose specialized in working with issues around sex and with people around sex and sexuality and and this area for quite a long time now but I find that it for almost every person who I work with it comes up in some shape or form but also you know I'm hugely sort of attachment focused which we might go into a bit later so I can explain a bit more about that and then also work very specifically with trauma which I find impacts almost all people to some degree uh, depending on how we define it and the impact it has but that's sort of where I'm at. Yeah so essentially I just wanted to jump in with a little bit of the background reading that we'd gone into. So we've seen that you've done a lot of work to break the stigma around sexual health and the discussions surrounding that both in Ireland and the UK and obviously thank you for that but I wanted to ask you more specifically about the common insecurities that people have about sex and why you think it's so important that people can open up about these and discuss sex more generally. Yeah, so, so many here, you know, I really think there's, there's a lot of insecurities that come up again and again, and also that people come to me about, but I would say, especially for people raised as men, people with penises, um, it's around what I think is a horrible name is erectile dysfunction. Um, and often the name is is applied to people where, you know, in a small number of cases, I'd say about 10% of cases of, of people who experience what is known as erectile dysfunction, it is a physiological, you know, physical problem. But about 90% is, is more psychological or emotional, as I prefer to put it. And I think that it is such a different uh, approach to erectile dysfunction when we look at it as the body not feeling totally safe. And that there can be all sorts of historical reasons for that. It might just mean that in the scenario right then and there, maybe you haven't known the person that you're um, having that sexual interaction with long enough. And also just this general sense, largely from mainstream porn, which is that we're supposed to have, or people with penises are supposed to have this like incredible amount of stamina. The sex is supposed to go on for, you know, hours and hours. Um, and that is just not realistic for most people. You know, actually, when you look at the stats, most penetrative sex tends to last for, you know, five to maybe 10 minutes. Now, of course, that doesn't have to mean the whole sexual interaction is that, but a lot of people are, you know, pleasantly surprised and reassured to know that it definitely doesn't need to mean being able to sort of hammer away for hours and hours on end. That generally tends to become desensitizing and painful. But um, yeah, so that's a, that's a really, really common um, insecurity that people will come to me with. And then also for people with vaginas and vulvas, it would be around arousal and taking time to get aroused and, and feeling like they should be uh, faster, that they should be more ready for sex, uh, not feeling, I would say, really not feeling comfortable at all to request what they want with their sexual partners. So I think we have 
a real intersection here with all sorts of things, but I like to look at things intersectionally. So in terms of like race, class, gender, sexuality, and a whole host of other things, there's just a, a lot of interesting aspects as to why we feel like we can communicate about certain things and why we don't. And you did touch on that there, Rachel, and it was actually going to be one of our, our later questions, but it was the availability of mainstream porn and the impact that that has on us sexually and the insecurities that builds in us because for a lot of us, that's our first kind of sexual interaction or introduction to the sexual world. I remember when I was in school and in Dublin when I was younger and when I was 10 or 11, porn videos would be passed around the yard and you'd be thinking, oh, you know, what is this? What's going on? Is this what to expect? And then this image is brought up in your mind for, for many years and it brings this battle between reality versus fantasy. And I, I wonder, could you build on that a little bit more for us and how that, that impacts both uh, people with penises and people with vaginas and vulvas? And also, maybe I'd like to see from your perspective if there's any positives of uh, people's engagement with porn uh, growing up and, and throughout their adulthood. Absolutely. You know, I do think I would never say that porn in itself is a terrible thing. I think that it's so much to do with how it's used. You know, if you're engaging, for instance, with a very specific type of porn for, let's say, hours a day, you know, over time that has a, you know, a neurological effect. You're starting to become, it's, it's normalizing that to you. You might find that over time it is harder to um, orgasm or even get aroused without that type of porn, for instance. So it's not that the porn in itself is necessarily a problem. It's more like what it is going to be doing on a, on a more biological level for us um, but I think that it can be used in very you know connecting pleasurable ways be that on your own or with partner or partners um, the problem to me is more uh, how mainstream porn is depicted which is generally you know extremely sort of objectifying of the people with vaginas it is like there's an expectation of people the, the people with penises in most porn tend to be extremely silent for instance you know, compared to the women making a lot of noise. And I think that's a really interesting one that I see and hear play out in a lot of people's relationships, whatever their sexuality or gender, is just how what we're seeing in mainstream porn um, is, is kind of guiding people and conditioning people to believe is the norm. Um, and so then there's also, you know, a huge focus on certain kinds of very sort of like vigorous sex or extreme sex, um, and I think there's a place for everything, you know, for, for all types of sex, as long as it's consensual for porn. You know, if we're focusing on orgasms being the biggest part of sex, um, that is really problematic because you can have an orgasm and it can be potentially not very enjoyable at all. It can potentially be painful. It can feel shameful. But then I also think it's important to look at, for instance, the orgasm gap, which is that in heterosexual sex, people with penises tend to orgasm. I think it's 91% of the time and people with vaginas um, only about 39%. So there's a huge gap there, which has been often um, attributed to this massive myth that it's much harder for people with, with vulvas to, to orgasm when actually the research has shown that um, when people with vulvas masturbate, it takes them roughly four minutes to orgasm. So, you know, not so elusive after all. So, you know, that's, that's, I'm going slightly away from, from porn here, but I think it's all very, very connected as to how we are being yeah. very conditioned very early on to what we view as good sex, right sex, wrong this, sex. 
there's probably an issue there in terms of expectation of a partner expectation of the activity and because you go in with what you think is an understanding of sexual engagement maybe that's where you don't communicate like you would for other activities with a partner like you talk about what you're going to eat for dinner or what you're going to cook but then when it comes to sex it's supposed to be that you know exactly what they want and they know exactly what you want and i do think porn has a has a role to play in that Oh, big time, you know, expecting our partners to be like psychic, like telepathic anyway. And I think this isn't just in sex, it's in all sorts of, you know, especially romantic relationships, but basically relationships with, with all people that most of us have been um, not only um, not encouraged, but sometimes actively discouraged growing up from being clear about our boundaries and our needs and our wants. And so we will find it, you know, that might come out as very people pleasing behavior. It might come out as regularly sort of shutting down and withdrawing and becoming very avoidant or, or even dissociating. Um, but that there are many different ways that we learn to cope with not feeling safe enough or able to communicate in the moment, sometimes for fear of disappointing someone else or, or angering them. Um, but that often that ends up, we end up in a worse scenario later on when, you know, you can see this with the trend of like, people faking orgasms, especially people with, with vaginas, that, you know, this idea that an orgasm um, or faking one can be, is, is often a way that people with vaginas yeah. will, or you know, those conditions as women will end a sexual interaction because either they're tired, they can't be, you know, they don't feel able to say what it is that they, that they need in order to be able to get off, or they don't feel able to just say, I'm not going to orgasm and that's okay. You know, great if orgasms are important to one or both of you or however many people are involved in the sexual interaction, but it's not the be all and end all either. I think I think there's always been a conversation, particularly around sex and sexual health, that's been taboo and there's sort of something that's baked into us from a young age. But there have been signs that things are becoming more open and more fluid in sort of recent years. And obviously things like accessibility of some forms of porn which is perhaps more normalized and is more like a normal sexual experience would be is plays a role in that but i'm wondering if you have any other sort of examples of things that have been sort of driving factors in facilitating this more sort of open and fluid uh, conversation yeah i think so the media has actually done really well with this you know i find a lot of the the best um sex educators on instagram personally um and i think that you know there's been a big move in terms of you know overall um feminism body positivity sex positivity being able to see for instance sex work as work and to not to just be taking away the stigma even of things like you know stis it makes no sense that there would be more shame or any shame or embarrassment around an sti over getting the flu it doesn't have to mean anything about you, you mm. as a person. Now, of course, okay, it might relate to how you could have possibly have had safer sex, but not always. Um, yeah. And I think that this is, you know, a big part of, of what you're doing and what we're trying to do here is just continue that conversation around partly how this shame has come about. I do think that like insight is a really useful part of this. How much is, of this is to do with our own parents and families and, and culture and societies fear and misinformation and shame um, especially is sometimes relating to religion um, and mm. also relating to trauma you know people's experiences where they felt so 
isolated, alone, on, on not knowing who they could go to, to to get some support, that often these things get really pushed under the rug and then start, you know, that trauma starts to be, um, sometimes it can be coming out in different ways within a family system. Yeah, yeah, no, I I agree. I think in some senses, yes, things are becoming easier because conversations are more open now and then less sort of like regionally restricted so I grew up in Somerset and so there was not that many other people like me around and so being in London the conversations do flow more freely and social media does help uh, move that along but you know uh, like you were saying there's a long way still to go on that. There is and I think it's really important that we're doing things like this because it is the communication it is the discussion it is creating spaces for people to be more honest self-reflective um authentic about what it is that they've gone through or what it is that they that they like and that they want um which might feel embarrassing or shameful or scary to them um, yeah. and so the more spaces that we can have to be you know both self-compassionate and non-judgmental towards people while still maintaining our own um you know boundaries the the more that we shine a light on this shame and it dissolves away and that plays quite well into sort of the, the next thing that I wanted to ask you about was when we were sort of uh, prepping for this, we asked a few different people about what sort of issues they're currently facing. And one of them was around people's relationships with casual sex. Um, and to start with, I was wondering if you could give some perspective on why people tend to feel down after a one night stand, because I think that's something that, you know, rings true for a lot of people. Totally. And I think this goes back, it's a little bit or quite similar to porn, where we have this cultural expectation, which has been sort of thrust upon us, so to speak. And, you know, there's this concept that casual sex is supposed to be this really sort of easy, fun, un uncomplicated thing that, that people can do. And actually, when you consider how many people have shame about their, you know, their sexual desires, their bodies, and, you know, different insecurities, messages that we've been getting, you know, societally, culturally, religiously, you know, it makes a lot more sense that people would actually find casual sex and one night stands extremely difficult and full of, you know, complicated feelings and experiences. So, you know, I think really normalizing that like casual sex doesn't tend to be easy for people in general. But, you know, I think that in order, you know, so sometimes when I speak to people who seem to find one night stands extremely easy and they just can do it all the time, they're often they're often very, very shut down emotionally in other aspects of their life. There's just so many reasons why we might feel uncomfortable. We we actually discussed, I think, in, in the lead up to the call was, you know, that influence of uh, tradition or, or religion in your life. And for me, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I grew up in, in Catholic Ireland and grew up with parents, grandparents that pretty much married the first person that they ever dated. And consciously or subconsciously, my, my body picked up on this and my cancer actually brought it to my attention when I was in therapy one day. And we were talking about this guilt around one night stands. And he said that to me and he said, well, you know, if you're told in school your whole life and all you see is one thing, of course you're going to feel bad because it's going to feel like that's not okay so i think there's probably ways that we can have healthy casual sex as well i i, I imagine and it'd be cool to to hear from you and from your experience with with clients and and just from your education in this area you know how can we emotionally prepare ourselves better for casual sexual experiences 
Absolutely. And I think one of the one good thing to do is to sort of look at your own expectations and also your needs that you're hoping to have met. You know, this goes back to like casual sex in general. It is seen societally as a dirty thing to um, have needs. And realistically, this is what it is to be human. You know, this is why I have such an attachment focus that like we don't need to be in a monogamous long-term relationship or marriage in order to feel fulfilled or to be happy or to feel successful in our lives necessarily but that it is an extremely fundamental biological need for us to attach to other people yeah i think that recognizing that can take away a lot of the the fear and the sting and the kind of the guilt or the shame of having certain feelings about casual sex both before during well and, and also after of course so I think that preparing yourself emotionally, like literally sitting down and reflecting, like, what is it that I'd like to get out of this experience? You know, maybe this only takes you a couple of minutes to do. It doesn't have to take hours, but just like, what needs do I have? Is it that I'm wanting to feel appreciated? Is it wanting that, I, am I wanting to sort of explore, you know, a sense of adventurousness? Is it about playfulness and kind of creativity? Is it simply wanting to feel connected to someone else? Is it more about wanting to, you know escape something which doesn't have to be a negative thing in itself sometimes we might just want to have a space that feels very different to our work life or you know something that we've been very focused on recently that there's a sort of an an outlet um within sex which is so you know richly full of imagination and sensation and so many possible experiences that we can have so i think just having taking a bit of time to to really reflect on that and recognize that if you have very specific expectations that those need to be discussed with your sexual partner or partners because otherwise you run the huge risk of them having no idea doing the opposite uh you feeling very frustrated or disappointed or possibly even used or taken advantage of so just knowing your expectations i think is probably the best thing that any of us can do and accepting that it's absolutely okay to have needs um, to feel appreciated, admired, whatever it is, um, and just be okay with that. There was, there was something you mentioned there about you, sex as a form of escapism isn't always bad, um, which is really refreshing to hear. There's also something that, that many people are, are aware of is that people can use sex as a form of self-harm and in more of a negative form of escapism, and it is a fairly under-discussed topic, even though it, it's incredibly prevalent. And because it's so under-discussed, sometimes these behaviors can go unrecognized in ourselves. You know, there's many people that go through these unhealthy patterns and only recognize after they're, they're true with those patterns that they actually existed in the first place. So myself and Josh were wondering, do you have any advice for our listeners that might help them to identify that they have these behaviors in themselves? Yeah, sure. So I suppose for me, if it's if it's compulsive and leading to debilitating effects on your life or your well-being, that's a good sign that this needs to be, you know, sort of looked at, you know, because if something is compulsive, but it's not actually causing you any negative effects, then do your thing, you know, and, and it's also consensual and safe and not, you know, not negatively impacting other people. And if it's not compulsive, but it has negative effects, I mean, you know, okay, ideally you would still look at that because if it's in some way impacting your life in that you, you know, it's affecting your, how present you are or how 
you engage with people in your other relationships or it's stopping you from working because you're thinking so much about it or it's leading you into unsafe situations that's a good good time to sort of go hang on when I hear the term self-harm it usually makes me think of how self-critical we can be that any any behavior can be used as self-harm be that relating to fitness diet gambling basically anything can be a form of what we can call self-harm but that underneath that you will always find in my experience that the reason we are engaging in that activity or set of activities is because on some level it's meeting a need that is that is missed and so being able to recognize that like if what i'm doing is going out and having a lot of casual sex with people where i end up feeling terrible afterwards but i don't seem to be able to stop myself from doing it what is it that i'm actually hoping to get from this sex now sometimes you'll find there's a there's a real mix of of feelings and conflicting desires in there you know where one part of us might really want to have a sort of stable safe connection and attachment with someone another part of us might feel terrified of intimacy or just not feel like we're in that like a place in our lives right then and there where we're able to devote that much sort of you know emotionally physically and you know sort of energy wise to something longer term but at least when you start to question it without this self-critical view of like oh god what's wrong with me why am i doing this this is bad i'm an idiot for doing you know this this sort of shame self-talk which is i'm not enough on some level there's something wrong with me i'm defective once you can dig in a little bit deeper into that in a gentle way and sort of check out what is it that i'm actually looking for here is it recognition is it you know a sense of adventure playfulness all those things i mentioned before and so yep. most of us just have not had the education you know the to, to even have the vocabulary to understand the the nuances between different things that we might be wanting and needing at any certain certain moment so that that means you know if you don't even have the language for it you're still having the sense of be it deprivation or or anxiety or shame but often not really knowing why which just leads to then a sort of self-reinforcing loop of fear and shame and keeping it in to yourself i think identifying those behaviors it's one of those things where it's it's so much easier said than done like it's it's a case of yeah knowing in the moment that what you're doing is a potentially destructive behavior is really difficult and so that's something that we found when we've been uh working with troglo in terms of how does your relationship to sex affect your mental health it, like asking people that question they don't it's not some two things they seem to think about and connect as often as one may think from the outside do you have any tips of like you know easy things that people can do on a more short basis to sort of like take stock and identify if there is a potential issue more effectively definitely the um one most useful tool that i find in all of therapy and self development of any kind is journaling you know being able to sit down preferably with a pen and paper i mean you can do it on your phone or or laptop or whatever as well but i think there's something about the act of putting pen to paper and connecting with yourself in that more physical way rather than being sort of you know as so many of us are especially during a global pandemic you know stuck to a screen that just sort of connecting with let's lay this out you know maybe it doesn't have to be in totally linear sense maybe you don't only use words or you know just sort of succinct bullet points but you might draw a mind map or just some doodles of what's going on for you 
but being able to express yourself in some way, which I know for some people can feel a bit sort of awkward or, or fluffy to begin with. But actually, most people very, very quickly will begin to feel very connected to that. And it's a tool that anybody can use basically at any time, which makes it very accessible and just quite yeah. easy to sort of go like, right, let's ask myself a couple of questions and get this down on paper. It's, yeah. it's, it's actually mad the impact that just writing something down can have. And I know from my experiences of doing cognitive behavioral therapy um, with the NHS is so often the emotional part of our brain is in control. It's in the driving seat. And suddenly when you put pen to paper, the logical part of your brain suddenly gets a say and you can, and using things like the worry tree or, you know, just general cognitive journaling can be so effective. I think where sex fits in and when we look at it, you know, your cognitive behavioral uh, cycle, like it's both a, a trigger for worry, but it's also a behavior that can come from worrying or being anxious and, um, or feeling down in ourselves. So, yeah, I'd, I, I just want to reiterate that journaling is my, my number one. I love it. So, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think being able to accept that all feelings are OK, all feelings are valid. It is absolutely OK to have any feeling. It's what you do with it that makes the difference. You know, if you have a feeling like I'm angry with this person and you decide you're just going to go and punch them in the face, that's, you know, that is not proper, in most cases a particularly healthy or useful way to deal with that scenario but what you can do is recognize and acknowledge you know this is there's an element of, of mindfulness here of just acknowledging i'm really angry i'm really pissed off about that thing now let's just feel angry for a bit let myself sit with that and this can also be you know although it's you know often associated only with things like meditation i think that it is just an incredibly useful life skill for absolutely anyone and very accessible it's a nice thing to practice is to just sort of go what is actually happening for me right now how do i know that i'm feeling uncomfortable and then you can sort of put some labels onto the emotions if that is helpful to you yeah. to be able to say like okay is this anger is it anxiety is it both is it jealousy is it shame you know is it, yeah. is it just fear you know, and then you can sort of go into like, okay, what are the connected thoughts with this? But I think often what we do is we go straight to trying to manage our thoughts without mm. dealing with the more um, sort of bodily nervous system aspect of how is what I'm experiencing impacting me on a limbic system, which is our emotional brain? What are the emotions that this is bringing up for me? That's just, uh, I suppose, a recurring uh, message throughout this podcast, and I hope it's one that listeners take away with them, is there is an exercise in getting to know ourselves a lot better to manage our well-being when it comes to sex and, and, and the wider world. I know for me, I was going through a particularly difficult time with depression last summer, and for, I think, every day for three months. Now, this is a bit, this is a bit extreme, but I had a spreadsheet, and I had, like, all these different categories that I would rate and I know that that's subjective and then I'd have how much exercise did I do how much meditation did I do how was my sleep and I'd have notes that would say if I did anything untoward that day so if I had you know a, a big meeting if I'd been out for drinks the night before if I you know ex didn't exercise that day if I got an injury all this type of stuff and over the course of that three months I was able to work out okay this is the amount of drinks I can have before I feel really, really bad the next day. This is how many days in a row I can kind of have lunch with other people before I need to have lunch on my own one of the days and have more headspace to myself. This is the amount I should sleep every night. 
and it was just like doing this homework project on myself and I was able to look after myself so much better after that and I think uh, you know I hope people can can start to understand themselves a little bit better going forward and and look after themselves a little bit better too so we're, we're nearly we're nearly at at the end of of the podcast and it's been such a pleasure having you on I, I don't think many people would expect that two people from Dublin and, and, a, and a lad from Somerset will be on talking about sex on a podcast but here we are so before before we wrap up I wanted to just ask if you have any more you know advice for uh, to leave our, our listeners with on on positive sexuality and, and mental health even if you want to reiterate something you've said already yeah I suppose I'd like to add in something about labels because I think that there's a lot of conversation at the moment around mental health sex sexuality gender different types of relationships you know that you know that they tell us they give us information about clusters of feelings experiences or symptoms which can help us understand what to do or or where to go but i think they can also be you know labels of of any kind can also be extremely restrictive and we can get obsessed with sort of binaries and dichotomies something that could have been you know the label which could be sort of interesting and informative can end up being this huge source of shame and sense of being limited for sure uh, it's a great point to finish on it's something that we're looking to dive into more of the course of this podcast series and also looking to identify through the travel app uh, along with some of the great messages that you shared today so rachel thank you so much for joining us i learned uh, i've learned a huge amount about good well-being in the in the world of sex and i'm sure josh and our listeners have too so that is all for this episode tune in this day next week for episode two of the reset and release podcast brought to you by travel thank you guys <laughs>